So numerous times I've heard Ray Ortland say that he was just five minutes away from total disaster. Uh, he's an author, pastor, seminary professor before. So uh, him saying that has stuck with me because he, more than any other person over the last 15 years, has had the single most influence on my life. So when one of my heroes and mentors that I look up to says that he is just five minutes away from total disaster, then my ears perk up, and so does my heart. Here's how Ray Ortland said it in one context. If we are distracted from real-time connection with the mercies of God so that our hearts grow cold and our mouths become reckless and our eyes wayward and our feet wandering, we are only one misstep away from life-shattering catastrophe. We do not have to give ourselves to raw evil to end up there. We only have to unguard our hearts. We only have to stop being vigilant. Every one of us is always five minutes away from total disaster. But if we are receiving by faith the outpouring of Christ's love in constant supply from his throne of grace, we cannot lose our way. So we have to be vigilant in guarding our hearts. The book of Proverbs tells us that. We have to deal with, we have to put to death indwelling sin so that we don't take a step that will result in life-shattering catastrophe. And that's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. So turn there in your Bibles. After today, I have three more Sundays until I start my sabbatical, and I thought about trying to finish the book of Colossians with just four sermons, but that would just be rushing too fast through it. So we're going to take our time, we're just going to kind of mosey our way through this book until my sabbatical starts, and then uh, after my sabbatical in October, we'll return to the book of Colossians and finish it up. You should be used to this because your favorite shows sometimes do half seasons and then they make you wait eight months and then they pick up the second half of the season. That's all we're doing. So just think some show on Netflix, this is all this preaching series is. You've got a, eight episodes, you've got to wait eight months, and you wrap up with the last four. So there you go. You should be used to this. Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You've probably heard that before. And that's what the Apostle Paul will talk about in our passage today. Putting sin to death. But how do we do that? How do we kill sin? How do we mortify sin? The way the Puritans use the word mortification. How do we mortify sin? Well, the only way that we will ever be able to put sin to death, to mortify sin, to kill sin, to murder sin, the only way we'll ever be able to do that is if we cry out, Help me, Holy Spirit. That's our big idea today. Now, Paul doesn't mention the Holy Spirit in our passage today. In fact, Paul only mentions the Holy Spirit one time in the book of Colossians, in Colossians 1 verse 8. So why is this our big idea? Answer, because of what Paul says in Romans 8.13, where he says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live if the Holy Spirit empowers you to put your sin to death. You will not lose out. See, that's what we tend to think. I'm losing out on something. If I kill sin, if I say no to what I desperately want, I'm going to be losing out. No, you won't lose out. You will actually live. 
If you give in to sin, whatever those desires are, whatever it is that you want, whatever flavor it is, you will die. It will be a living death. But if you put sin to death, you are promised that you will live. You will experience life. So we can only put sin to death as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. And you should know that from experience. You've probably tried to kill sin yourself and it just doesn't work. Doing it in your own power. That means then that if we are to obey our passage today and put indwelling sin to death, we must keep crying out, help me, Holy Spirit. Listen, today is Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Easter, celebrating the fact that in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon these Jewish believers to send them out on mission to the, God, the Gentile world. So it's Pentecost Sunday. So what better Sunday to cry out, help me, Holy Spirit? And he will. Okay, Colossians chapter 3, help us, Holy Spirit. Look at verse 5 and hear the word of the Lord. Put to death, therefore, whatever or what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Okay, I have to be honest with you, because honesty is what you should expect from a preacher, right? I have to be honest with you. I did not look forward to preaching this passage. Give me an Old Testament genealogical passage with 400 hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names, and I'm good to go. I could preach through those every single week. But give me a passage that exposes what's in my heart, and I start looking for a guest preacher. I want to start my sabbatical before I get to this verse. These are tough verses because we all have these very desires in our hearts. But we shouldn't dread this passage. As the preacher, I dread these verses because these very things are in me and they come out of my heart. Just ask my family. They have been on the receiving end of all of my Colossians chapter 3 heart. But because we are in union with Christ, united to him by faith, we don't have to dread these verses. We don't have to avoid them. We let conviction do its work. We let the law of God do its work. We are exposed as people who do these things and have these desires inside of us. We stare into the mirror when we stare into these verses. And then we look to Christ. Then we collapse on Jesus. We read these verses. We see our reflection. We read them and say, that reminds me of me. And then we look to Jesus. And then we set our minds on Christ above. And then we remind ourselves that there are always fresh starts in the Christian life. There are such things as new morning mercies. Isn't that wonderful? There are always fresh starts with God. So even if we have succumbed to these desires, even if we have lusted and coveted things, even if we have been angry, even if we have slandered people or let a string of obscenities fly from our lips, even then, we can still get a fresh start with God. Isn't that wonderful? Maybe someone here today needed to hear that early in the sermon. 
You can start fresh with the Lord today, right now. There's mercy for you right now if you have been bogged down in all of these things that I just read. There's mercy for you too today. Okay, so Paul said in the previous verses that we saw last week that we are hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ appears, we will appear with him in glory. So in light of that truth, we are called to put to death what is earthly in you. This should humble every single one of us. What is earthly in you is in every single one of us. No one is exempt from this. Paul knows that evil desires reside in every human being, even Christians who have been saved by grace through faith. The evil desires and sins that Paul lists here are in every single one of us. They are not limited to a particular gender. They are not limited to a particular age group. And so when Paul says, what is earthly in you, he's talking about indwelling sin or the flesh, the the sinful nature, or better yet, self. Self with a capital S. Listen, even the godliest person you know has all of these sinful desires inside of them that must be put to death. No one is exempt. Yes, we have been forgiven. Yes, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Yes, we are new creatures in Christ. Yes, we are in union with Christ by faith. But until Jesus appears and we appear with him in glory, we will need to put sin to death. Your favorite famous radio preacher is no different than you. Your famous radio preacher has evil desires raging inside them that they must put to death every moment of every day. Even the holiest people you know, while in this life, will only have a small beginning of obedience. The Heidelberg Catechism talks about that. It says we only make small steps. Even the godliest among us really only take small steps in this obedience. Why? Because these desires still remain in us and we often give in to them. And this isn't in my manuscript, but let me ask you, did anybody get angry this week? Anybody willing to raise their hand right now and say, I got angry? Look around. Okay? I won't do lust. <laughs> I won't do obscene talk from your mouth like cuss words. But look around. We all did this stuff, Right? Why? Because these desires still remain in us and we often give in to them. So we only take baby steps in sanctification. But even though we only take baby steps in sanctification, we take them nonetheless. Even though we will never be perfected in this life, even though we will only have a small beginning in obedience, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, we are still called to put to death what is earthly in us. Why? Well, for starters... Because God commands us to, duh. God commands us to put what is earthly in us to death. So of course we have to. But God doesn't command us to put sin to death just because he gets a kick out of watching us struggling to put sin to death and often failing to do so. He doesn't get a kick out of that. God does it. He gives this commandment because he knows it will hurt us. He knows that when we give in to sin, it will disrupt shalom or peace or wholeness or harmony. In fact, people sometimes say that we break God's commandments when in reality we are the ones that get broken. 
We don't so much break God's commands as we get as much as we get broken when we disobey. We break, we break when we disobey. God's command is there, solid, secure. When we disobey it, we break. So we are called to put sin to death because God commands us to, because he wants the best for us, because he wants us to glorify him. He wants us to enjoy him. But we also put sin to death. We put what is earthly in us to death because we understand the nature of sin. We know what sin is. We know how it works. John Owen, the Puritan, again, is very helpful here. He says this, Indwelling sin must be killed, put to death, mortified. That is, have its power, life, vigor, and strength to produce its effects taken away by the Spirit. The mortification of indwelling sin remaining in our mortal bodies, that it may not have life and power to bring forth the works or deeds of the flesh, is the constant duty of believers. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing and tempting. Sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting, but if left alone, if not continually mortified, it will bring forth great Cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head. Listen, Christian, every sin has as its goal your destruction. A mere thought of lust wants to lead to physical adultery or sexual immorality of some kind. It just doesn't want to remain lust. Always, it's like, this is lust, okay, this is where we want to go. Adultery, immorality, porn, etc. A mere thought of hatred wants to go to murder. You don't just have that feeling of hatred. It's like, you know what, let's go all the way. Let's kill someone. Unbelief wants to turn into atheism. You begin to doubt God's worth. Unbelief is like, you know what? Let's go all the way and no longer believe in God. When you get mad at someone in traffic, if sin had its way, you would pull out a gun and kill the driver who angered you. It's sobering. It's sobering because John Owen called it indwelling sin. It's inside us. Gasp. And so the million-dollar question is, how do we kill indwelling sin so that lust doesn't become adultery, so that anger doesn't become murder, so that doubt doesn't become unbelief and atheism? How do we kill sin? How do we mortify, as the Puritans said, indwelling sin? How do we murder sin? We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to remind us of the gospel We have to understand and believe just how much Jesus loves us. That's the key. That's the key to putting sin to death. It's God's love for us as seen at the cross. Because here's something else that John Owen said that sadly doesn't get remembered as much as be killing sin or it will be killing you. John Owen said this. He said, a sense of the love of Christ in the cross lie at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. A sense of the love of Christ in the cross lie at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. 
So John Owen, who wrote the manual on killing sin, said that the key to all spiritual mortification, all sin being resisted, all sin being put to death was this, understanding and believing just how much Jesus loves you. Wow. Now, you don't hear that much when you hear people talking about killing sin, do you? All they say is put it to death. They focus on the behavior. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Right? Here's the rules. You don't hear anybody saying, here's how you kill sin. You have to really sense and believe that Jesus loves you. Even though you do all these things you shouldn't do, he still loves you. That's the key. It's God's love as seen at the cross. Sensing his love. Feeling his love. Being convinced of his love. And that's why Paul said what he said in verses 1 through 4 that we looked at last week. And why in verse 5 he brings up putting sin to death. Because it's sensing and feeling God's love that frees and empowers us by the Spirit to put sin to death. So when we seek the things above, like we saw last week, when we set our minds on things above, namely Jesus, we will then be empowered and actually have the desire to put sin to death. See, desire, that's key. It's about changing our desires. We want sin. We want these things. Let's admit it. We want the things that are mentioned in this passage. We want to do these things. There's a part of us that longs to do that. How do we kill it? We have to have our desires changed to say, you know what, I want Jesus more than I want the pleasure that will come from that. It's about getting underneath the behavior to the desires that are driving the behavior. And so understand this, what you grasp with your mind will rivet and capture your heart. What you grasp with your mind, what you're thinking about with your mind will then rivet and capture your heart. That's why Paul talks about seeking Christ above, setting our minds on him. And then he starts talking about desires. Because what you grasp with your mind, what you think about, what you mull over, dwell on, meditate on, will rivet and capture your heart and your affection. So it doesn't matter what the behavior is. If you're focused on it, you will give in to it. If you're stressed and worried about something and thinking about it, what happens? It begins to take over your heart. Scottish Presbyterian Thomas Chalmers knew this. He wrote one of the best sermons on rehearsing the gospel in order to kill sin. It was called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In this sermon, Chalmers said that in order to fight sin, we must fight with a superior, more powerful affection. Namely, being captivated by Jesus. Here's what he said. We have already affirmed how impossible it were for the heart, by any innate elasticity of its own, to cast the world away from it, and thus reduce itself to a wilderness. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It places before the eye of the mind him who made the world, In the gospel, do we so behold God as that we may love God. So what he's saying is like the heart just can't say, I don't want this desire, go. Now the heart is empty with no desires. 
He's saying the only way to get that bad, sinful desire out of your heart is that it has to be replaced by a more expulsive, powerful desire and affection that comes in, which is love for Jesus to kick out and to kill those desires. So you can't fight sin by being merely told it's wrong. You must replace your desire for sin with a new, powerful, gospel-centered affection that has the power to kick out sinful desires. To kill sin, we have to aim for the heart, not the sin. Bad behavior is not the target. It's the sinful desires underneath it all that lead to the bad behavior that must be killed. You must get at the motives and the desires that are underneath the behavior. You must learn to cry out, help me, Holy Spirit. Help me to see Jesus. Help me to get the gospel in my bloodstream. That's the only way to put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. The desire for these things must be replaced with a desire for Jesus. Now, Paul says in verse 5 that covetousness is idolatry. G.K. Bill, in his commentary on Colossians, says that all of these things, these sins that are listed here, are a form of idolatry. I think he's right. I don't think Paul is just singling out uh, coveting and saying coveting is idolatry. He's saying all of these things are a form of idolatry. I think he lists them all and basically is saying, All of these are uh, idolatry. This, 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 and this, which is idolatry. All of these sins are a form of idolatry because they place self at the center. They become idols that we think we must have. Here's Tim Keller's definition of an idol. He said, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God or idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? So Paul's talking in our passage about the idols of the heart that we all have. All these things that we say, if I had that, I'll be happy. Or if that gets taken away, I'll be destroyed. All of the sins that are listed here, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, they all place self at the center. Self at the center of the heart rather than God. And that's why they must be put to death. We could do a whole sermon series unpacking each one of these words and what it means, but you guys know what these words mean. What you need to know is how do we kill these things because they're inside of me. Unpacking some word and saying Paul uses it 67 times in the New Testament is not going to tell you much. You need to know, I need to know, how do I kill these things because they're all in me? I don't need to know how many times Paul uses this word in the New Testament. I need to know how to kill it because it's in me. Paul then says in verse 6 that 
on account of all these sinful desires that he has listed here, all of these sins, all of these idols, he says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is the response of a holy God to sin, is sinners who aren't trusting in Christ and they place self at the center and they live and they do all these things that they want to do. Everything we're seeing in our culture today with gender and sexuality and everything is people doing these things. And Paul is saying, the wrath of God is coming on those things because those people have set self at the center. Now, the wrath of God is not welcome in many theological circles these days. The wrath of God, preaching about the wrath of God, is not welcome in many churches today. It has fallen on hard times in this age of upset no one so that you don't get canceled. Now, you may push back at the idea that God could be angry at sin. But let me quote Tim Keller again. He said this, So it makes no sense to say, I don't want a wrathful God, I want a loving God. If God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil, angry enough to do something about it. Consider this also. If you don't believe in a God of wrath, you have no idea of your value. Here's what I mean. A God without wrath has no need to go to the cross and suffer incredible agony and die in order to save you. Picture on the left a God who pays nothing in order to love you, and picture on the right the God of the Bible who, because he's angry at evil, must go to the cross, absorb the debt, pay the ransom, and suffer immense torment. How valuable are you to the God of the Bible? Valuable enough that he would go to these depths for you. Your conception of God's love and of your value in his sight will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath. Your conception of God's love And how much you mean to him, your value in his sight as one of his creatures will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath. Yes, he loves you. Oh, how he loves you. That's why he sent his son. He went to incredible lengths to save you. That's how valuable you are as his creation. But you were born a sinner and you have rebelled against him and you have to give an account for that. And so do I. And if you don't turn to Jesus in faith, then you will stand before God one day and you will give an account. And without Jesus, you can't stand before God and be justified. And what awaits you is eternal punishment in hell. I don't want that for any of you. You can avoid that today, right now, by running to Jesus. You can avoid the wrath of God that is coming upon people who do all these things, who aren't united to Christ by faith. You can avoid that wrath that is coming by simply running to Jesus. Maybe you haven't done that yet. Will you do that today, right now? There's hope for every single person here today. Turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. Why not leave church today knowing that God's not mad at you, but that he actually rejoices over you? Why not come home today? Don't you wish that you believed in a merciful, kind Loving, gracious God? Come home to the God who loves you, who gave his son for you. Trust in his son and be adopted into his forever family. All you have to do is open the empty hands of faith. You don't bring anything. You just bring your sin and say, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. You can do that right now. You just open the empty hands of faith and you believe. Okay, Paul will now move from the mind to the tongue. Now he's going to expose our potty mouths. 
And you thought it was safe to go back into the text, didn't you? Cue the Jaws movie music. Because that's what happens when we jump back into verse 7. Paul's going to go after how we use our words. Look at verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. This list, like the one before it, is not comprehensive because sin is many-sided. Paul is spelling out what is common to the sinful nature, what is common to self, capital S, being at the center of the heart. These are the things we do. We get angry. We get angry at people in the roundabout because people still don't know how to drive through the roundabout. Come on. If you're out of state, I'll give you a pass. But if you lived in Santa Maria for three months, you should know how to drive through a roundabout, right? Anybody else get angry at the roundabout? Am I the only one? We get angry at people. Go to the grocery store. 15 items or less, and there's somebody with like 40, and you're like, come on, man. I'll let 17 or 18 go. But really, we get angry at things like that. We slander people. Obscene language pours from our lips. We lie. And so with these two lists here in Colossians 3, Paul is talking about actions and attitudes. He's thinking of all facets of a person's being, who we are, our thoughts, our words, our actions, and deeper than all of that, our motives, what's driving us. What these two lists show us is what happens when we get our eyes off Jesus. That's when all the earthly things inside of us emerge. That's why Paul pulls them back into union with Christ, which is the reason why they should not lie to one another and slander and get angry. Because in verse 9, he says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You, you put it off. It's like uh, you, you take off like wet cloth. I remember working when I worked in Hollywood in lighting. I was thinking about this this morning. There were many times I would come in from working all night outside. Sometimes it would rain and we'd be just like slopping through the mud, soaking wet. And I would come into our little duplex that we rented in Montrose, California. And Heather would be asleep. It would be like 6 a.m. I'd be coming in from working all night, muddy, wet, filthy. And as we walked into the duplex, there was this little like maybe three feet by three feet little patch of linoleum before the white carpet. And so I was, a, I mean, I'm an idiot, but I knew at 6 a.m. I do not come in and just walk into my house. I, I got to take my muddy boots off, my, my muddy jeans, my wet, muddy clothes. I have to take those things off. Why? Because I have a relationship with my wife. In the same way, we have a relationship with Jesus. So Paul's saying, you put these things off. You take them off. If you pick them up and put them on again and you give in to these desires, you have to put them off because you don't do these things anymore. Now, as a single guy, I probably would have just walked into my apartment with my roommates and not cared about getting mud everywhere. But when you're married, you're in union with that person. And that union changes how you act. And that's what Paul is talking about here, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. This putting off is the circumcision with Christ that he mentioned back in chapter 2. The Colossians were cut off from Adam on the cross. They put off Adam and they put off the old self like an old garment and they were then clothed with Christ. They put Christ on. Again, this is union with Christ's language. 
And it's the gospel that serves as the motivation to do all of this, to put sin to death. Paul is basically saying here, be who you are. Be who you are. You're in Christ. Live like someone who is in Christ. Paul is saying, you died to sin in the past. Now, at the cross, you died to sin. Now, kill sin in the present. Or for us, you can say it this way, you died to sin at Calvary. Now, kill sin in California, where you live. You must be committed to committing the murder of your sin. And you murder your sin, you put your sin to death by remembering that Christ was put to death for your sin. Why do we have to be committed to committing the murder of our sin? Because, as Jacob Smith says, we are all three bad days in a row away from becoming a tabloid headline, and most of us are already on day two. For some of us here, we're three days away from becoming a tabloid headline. And some of us are already on day two. So let me say to you today, don't let your heart drift. You're one click away. I'm one click away. You're one text away, one kiss away, one look away, one DM away. And so look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Rehearse the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. See the beauty of Jesus as he lives and dies for you. And don't lose your awe. Don't lose your wonder at what he's done for you. Just pray, Holy Spirit, don't let me lose my awe. Pray, help me, Holy Spirit. Pray, help me, Holy Spirit, to guard my heart. To guard your heart, as the book of Proverbs says, is to be vigilant about caring for it because it will determine the course of your life. That means that the thoughts and the conversations and the monologues that we have with ourselves and our hearts will determine the course of our lives. That's scary because we all rehearse over and over again in our hearts the things that will determine the course of our lives. Our thoughts stir our affections. Remember, what you grasp with your mind will rivet and capture your heart. And life is made up of 10,000 little moments, isn't it? And in these little moments, we are having these thoughts and these conversations and these monologues with ourselves. We do this, don't we? we, we in the shower, we're like, we think about a conversation. We say, well, I should have said this, and that would have put him in their place. And then I would have won the argument. Or, or if that guy brings that up, I'm going to say this and do this. And, does anybody else do that in the shower? These 10,000 little moments, all these little monologues that we're having with ourselves, and they end up determining the course of our life. That's why you don't just wake up one day and despise the Lord. You don't just wake up one day and say, I'm pulling out of church. I don't need fellowship. I can do Christianity on my own. You don't just wake up one day and say that. And you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm not sure I believe the Bible is right when it speaks about that matter or this issue. And that's happening a lot today, isn't it? You don't just wake up one day and say, I don't love my spouse anymore. It happens slowly as your communion with God, your fellowship, your friendship with God begins to diminish. Your communion, your fellowship, your friendship with Jesus begins to evaporate. And it happens very slowly. It happens very subtly as you have all of these thoughts and conversations and monologues within your own mind and heart. 
And that's why we really could be five minutes away from total disaster. That's why we really could be one day away from becoming a tabloid headline because we've entertained these thoughts for days and days and days and we're on the cusp of total catastrophe because we weren't being vigilant about guarding and caring for our own heart. And so if you're going to guard your heart, you need God's word. We'll talk about that more next week. To guard your heart, you need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. You need to hear about Jesus, how he lived for you, how he died for you. You need to hear how good he is, how kind he is, how loving he is, how merciful he is, how generous he is. We are free. We can choose to not walk in God's ways. We can choose to not put sin to death, but we cannot avoid the consequences. We can choose to walk according to our own wisdom, but one thing we cannot do is evade the consequences. We can't escape consequences. If we say, oh, phooey, God's warnings, that is no place in a gospel-centered church. If we say that to God's word, we are in danger. No, we can't lose our salvation. We don't believe that here at Grace. We do not believe that you can lose your salvation. We do not believe that you can sin your way out of grace. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ forever. But we do believe that you can seriously mess up your life if you don't guard your heart. You can be in Christ, in union with Christ, and have made a total mess of your life. So yes, there's mercy and grace to help us endure the consequences of our decisions and rebellions and sin, but the consequences nevertheless remain. So how do we guard our hearts? We have to gaze upon Jesus. We have to be in awe of him, that he would live and die for people who not only do the things that are mentioned in our passage today, but we're the kind of people who want the things that are mentioned here. We crave these things, and he would die for us. We just have to gaze upon Jesus, and God has made it so easy for us. Isn't that wonderful? Anyone can guard their heart. All you have to do is keep your eyes on Jesus. A little four-year-old believer in Jesus running around who trusts in Jesus can guard their heart by keeping their eyes on Jesus. God has made it so, he has set the bar so low for us. He says, look to my son and be in awe of him. So we have to taste and see that the Lord is good, but in real time. We have to behold his beauty. We have to read about him in his word. We have to celebrate his forgiveness through baptism and the Lord's Supper. We have to hear his word preached every single week. We have to think about him. We have to rehearse the gospel. We have to worship. That's the answer. So maybe you're here today and you need a fresh start with God. Maybe you're dying to start over today because you're dying out there living without Jesus. Maybe you're dying out there because you've been doing the things in this passage and you know it's killing you. What do you need to kill today? What, what sin do you need to kill? Not put it in a timeout. Kill. This is harsh language. Put it to death. What sin do you need to kill in your life? Maybe today you really feel like, man, I really am just five minutes away from total disaster. I've been doing a lot of this stuff. Maybe you've been letting what is earthly in you run wild. 
You can start over today. You can get a fresh start today. All you need to get a fresh start is Jesus and his gospel and being honest about where you are. And when you combine Jesus and his gospel with the truth and the honesty of where you are at, where your heart is at right now, that's the beginning of healing. That's how you begin to get some traction and get moving again instead of being paralyzed by the shame and the guilt and the condemnation that you feel because you've been doing these things. You just collapse on Jesus. That's all repentance is, is literally just collapsing on Jesus, saying, have mercy, I need you. Maybe you're here today and you think, you know what? You've gone too far. You've blown it. Like you really messed up your life. Maybe you think you're too far beyond God's grace. Maybe you're thinking that there's no way God could love you. Maybe you think you deserve to be struck down by the sword. Let me give you some good news right now. You can start over right now. A fresh start. You haven't drifted too far. Jesus has not let you go. He's calling you home today. He will not give up on you. He can't. What Jesus did on the cross for your sins is too costly for God to just give you up and desert you. Now, we all know the stupidity of our sins, right? We know when we do the things in in this passage, we know this is stupid. Why am I still doing it? We know it's stupid. We know it's wrong. We know consequences are out there. We know it's disastrous to sin. We know the empty promises of sin. But knowing that doesn't change our hearts, does it? That realization that sin will kill us doesn't change us. It doesn't transform us. What does? It's only when we see Jesus. It's Christ crucified. It's beholding the beauty of God in the face of his son that changes us. So look to him today. And if you need to, just say, help me, Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, help me to see Jesus. And he will. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, it's Pentecost Sunday. And we thank you that you live inside of us individually and then as a church family. And we just confess that we need you. Confess that we will never make any traction, get any traction in our lives without your help. We've tried to say no to sin in our own strength and it doesn't work. And so we need you. We're desperate. We just collapse on you today. Forgive us of our many sins. Forgive us for doing the things that are in this passage, not putting them off, but putting them on, not killing them, but helping them to live. So forgive us of that. Thank you that you promise us life. Thank you that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for that. Thank you for fresh starts. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you that your mercies are new right now. We open the empty hands of faith to receive it. Empower us to live for your glory, we ask in your name. Amen.